you all haven't melted uh, this week, hope you're doing well. Turn on the air conditioner at uh, 9 a.m. in here this morning. Obviously, it's doing phenomenal. It's uh, great to have you guys here. I hope you're amped to be here, whatever that means for you. I know what it means for me. Uh, it's been a crazy week for me, uh, but the, the promise, the, the hope, the longing to be gathered with God's uh, people and, and uh, those uh, here to study and to worship together has been uh, incredibly exciting. And I want to do a little bit of an intro, if I may, uh, not that you have a choice, but um, if I were to ask each of you what your view of the Scripture is, in other words, like, what do you think of the Bible? What's so interesting is that many of us would have such a different uh, viewpoint. If I were to go around the room with a microphone, I would venture to say uh, that there would be uh, several different viewpoints of the Scripture. Uh, Tonight, my goal is not to um, necessarily adhere uh, to to your different uh, viewpoint, though I respect it. Uh, what we're here to do tonight is to share our viewpoint of the Scripture, and then I want to uh, show you, rather, what we're going to do because of that viewpoint. We believe that the Bible is, um, is God's Word, first of all, and that we believe that, that God inspired this Word, and that every word of it, uh, though written by the hands of man, is, in fact, God's Word. We believe that it's inerrant. So that makes this Scripture, this Bible, um, A, worth our time and our study, but also it makes it the truth, the life source. Although these are words on a page, the scripture calls itself living and active, sharper than a two-edged sword. And so here at Matthias, I want to explain to you what we're going to do because of that. We take the scripture and we teach verse by verse. What you're going to see tonight is we're going to take three verses, not randomly. We're not just going to pick three verses out of the scripture and say, go to it. We've been studying one particular book in the Bible for a long time. So we're going to take where we're at now in the chronological order, study those three verses, and what we're going to do in those three verses is answer three questions. These are the same three questions I encourage you to answer in your own study and reading of the Scripture. The first question is, what is the context? Who is the author? Who is it written to? Who is the audience? At what time was it written? All those things are drastically important when you're reading the Scripture. The second thing, and put ahead here in this body of others is what does this particular passage have to say about the character of God? We're very interested here at Matthias, not first in personal application. We're very interested in esteeming God, glorifying God, putting God on His throne, and allowing His character and the power of it and the majesty of it, the perfection of it, to then draw us into worship. Our response then that God's character is the life that each of us are called to live. So we'll look at the character. And lastly, conclusion. So what do we do with it? What does it mean to practical life? So no matter what background you're from, if this is your first time here, welcome. Or if you've been here for a long time, we've only been in existence four point, uh, what's the, what's 10 out of 12? What is that? What's the percentage there? What's that? 84.83, that doesn't, I'm, I just messed all of that up, but No matter how long you've been here, that's the point. That's our approach. So I want you to open your Bibles then to 1 Peter. Now, last week, and I have uh, some stories to share here at the beginning to get us into this. Last week we ended on a very powerful verse that said this. God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. And I've been wrestling more with that, and I wanted to share an example with you to get us into this. When I was a junior in high school... um, started to get very, very arrogant. I was starting to be recruited by some colleges to play football. I know that may seem surprising to you, but it's true. 
Um, we were in the middle of basketball season. I was starting to get recruited to play college basketball, which also doesn't make sense because I couldn't play defense. All I did was shoot three-pointers, literally. My junior year, I shot 273 three-pointers. So if you know anything about stats in high school, that's a whole lot, right? I didn't make nearly as many as I shot, trust me. But I was starting to think that I was pretty special. All these people wanted me. Uh, they wanted me to come and play. And, and again, I was confused by that somewhat, but I was reveling in it. And I started to notice... Um, this mindset of um, feeling worthy of being wanted. And I've started to think about why God opposes the proud. Well, the whole crux of my time there as a junior in high school, I thought that I was in need of nothing. Like, I can take care of it. I'm under control. Like, are you kidding me? All of these people want me to come and part. Like, I don't need your advice. I don't need to adhere to you. I'm doing just fine, you see? At the very heart of pride is this concept of I need nothing and I'm doing just fine. And that is why God opposes the proud. Because the proud man says, I need God not. The proud man says, I can do it on my own. The proud man says, I have it under control. And that goes for women as well there. Just choosing man for um, rhetoric's sake, right? But God gives grace to the humble. Why? Because the humble say, I need something. I can't do it on my own. I don't have the answers. I'm just uh, in a pit of destruction, as Psalm 40 says, and I need you. So that is why God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Because the humble say, God, I desire to follow you, and I need your grace. And so what God has a funny way of doing, as many of you know, is he has a funny way of humbling you anyway. So this recruit came uh, from a Division II university in Michigan, and it was during our um, Christmas tournament. And uh, first game, he was going to watch four. He was going to watch me play four games. So you think, all right, out of four games, surely I can put up a thirty spot, one of those, right? First game, I went uh, two for seventeen from three point land. That's a whole lot of threes to keep shooting when you're not making any. You know what I'm saying? But I kept chucking. So two out of seventeen, I had uh, nine points that game. And uh, no assists, no rebounds. I pretty much just stood around the three-point line. Second game, I had uh, literally two points. Third game, seven. And the fourth game, ten. You're like, how do you remember all this? Not sure, but just go with me, all right? So the, the recruit walks away and says, you know what? Um, like, as, as great as you sounded on paper from your mom, um, right? Like, I, I don't think we're interested. There's going to be a day when all are humbled, Right? Scripture says that one day every knee will bow and every tongue will confess. So whether you're humbled now or whether you're humbled later, we all will be humbled. And the blessing is, in that moment, the period of grace will be over. And so that is why we take the Scripture with great urgency, and so tonight we will do the same. First Peter chapter 5, are you there? Say, I'm there. So the first question I said is context. A Peter was a disciple of Jesus who heard the teachings of Christ, was around for many of the healings, saw a lot of crazy things. He was one of the inner circle, one of the three that were the closest to Jesus. And this is the man that writes this. So he writes from a very close perspective and proximity to the Lord Jesus. So that should bring us to a point of attention irregardless. He's writing to an audience that is in a and is in a very tumultuous situation, right? We've mentioned many times, if you're just joining us, the Roman Emperor Nero burns Rome, blames it on the Christians because they were an easy scapegoat. 
And this letter is written to all of these Christians in an area of the world called Asia Minor, modern-day Turkey. Anyone been to Turkey? Anyone like Turkey? All right, there we go. Right? It's written to that area of the world. And the whole perspective is this from Peter. I want to encourage these followers of Christ to remain in the faith though they are struggling, though they're going through difficult times, though their lives seem in complete trial. That's what we've been studying all along. Now the character of God, shall we? Verse 6. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you. Verse 7. Casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. Be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. You guys ready to go to work tonight? Let's begin with the word humble. The Greek word humble is tapainao. Everyone say that with me. Tapainao. All right. Oh, you. Thank you very much for that. The Greek word tapainao literally means, listen, to be reduced. It's not the first word that you think of when you think of humility, but that's what the word means. It means to be reduced. So let me ask you this. When have been some times in your life when you have been reduced? When you've been humbled? When maybe you were here and you were taken here? I would venture to say that they land in four categories. The first is when you see something beautiful. Anyone ever been reduced when you've seen beauty? All right. I remember when my, walked, uh, when my wife walked out of those double doors on our wedding day, right? You men remember this moment, okay? She's like in her just splendor, right? Beautiful song. She's just flowing. What do they call it? Gown, robe, what is it? Wedding dress, whatever. It's white. It's great, okay? And she walks out and... And literally, and most men do, and those that don't, their wives wish they did, I just start crying there on the altar. I'm humbled. I'm reduced. I'm like, are you kidding me? I get this one? Like, this is, she is just perfection, right? So every once in a while, I have her dressed up in her wedding gown at home. It's a lot of fun. Second time, um, not that she's not beautiful all the time. I didn't mean to imply that. Is she in here? I'm sorry, Beth, right? I didn't. The second time for me, uh, beauty being humbled is when I held my newborn children. Though they're come out, you know, with all of the things, whatever that's called on them, it's, right? Like, it's still just beautiful. All three times, and I'm not associating crying now with humility, but for me sometimes it is. Just wept at holding this beautiful creation, humbled, reduced, Okay. Uh, the third time is when I stood on the top of Sugarloaf Mountain in Rio de Janeiro, Brazil. Looking out at Christ Redeemer, maybe, maybe some of you guys know that statue, and the whole city of Rio is underneath. And just reduced. Right? The second kind of ways is um, when you realize your insignificance. So we're reduced when we see beauty. I think we're reduced when we realize how insignificant we are. I'm sure you've had one of those moments. For me, there was a time when I was at the El Shaddai Ranch Starry night, gorgeous night, breeze in my hair, 70 degrees, hold me jack, right? Titanic's playing in the background. Just a gorgeous moment. And I remember thinking to myself, like, I am truly insignificant. I, I am just such a speck in the scheme of God's creation. Humbled, reduced, brought low. The third is when you've been caught. We're reduced whenever we're caught red-handed. 
could be a litany of things. Ways that you were deceitful and lying and then someone found you out. Someone saw you looking at something that you weren't supposed to be. Someone heard something that you had said and you had meant it to be a secret, right? Listen, is there anything that makes your stomach drop more when you've been found out? It's pretty humbling, isn't it? Pretty reducing. Takes you all of a sudden and thrusts you to this bottom barrel. Lastly is tragedy. I think we're reduced mostly and generally in those four categories. I can remember, and some of you guys haven't heard this story, we had a girl in our church um, a couple years ago named Jake Gregory who fell off a cliff, 40-foot cliff or so. can't remember exactly how high. I get a call on my phone, and uh, many of you were there. We all rushed to the hospital, three or 400 people there. Uh, the doctors come out say, Jake has a, a 1% chance of living. So we're all gathered around, and we're all praying and I just remember being reduced, feeling humbled, right? Turned out that Jake um, has battled back and is doing amazingly well. He's gone back to school. God saved her, rescued her. It was a brilliant story. But in that moment, listen, in that moment of tragedy, here's what I realized. I realized that I could do nothing. You see? In that moment out there, Jake, 1% chance of living, I, as a human being, was put in my place. I can do nothing. I have no control. I'm not holding a scalpel. I'm not, I can't perform, I can do nothing. And herein lies the point of humility. The essence of humility. When Peter says, humble yourselves, therefore under God's mighty hand, means two things. Number one, you recognize that you are not in control. The first piece to humility under God's mighty hand is the recognition, I am not in control. For me, it was the moment with Jake and many others in my life, God will use other examples for you, trust me. You start to think you're in control, trust me, he will continue to shape your viewpoint. So first, it's recognize. I'm not in control. I don't, the world doesn't revolve around me as much as you and I struggle with that. Thinking that this universe somehow orbits around our great beings, it doesn't. And I love saying this, and I love even more believing this. God does not need me. He doesn't need me as the pastor of this church. He doesn't need me in my home or any of that. He doesn't need me to accomplish his will by his grace. In other words, getting what I don't deserve in grace He has chosen me and allowed me to be used, but he doesn't need me. You see the difference? Humility is that recognition. I am not in control. The world doesn't revolve around me. The world revolves around you. You hold it in the palm of your hand, you see. That's the first piece of humility. The second is this. Not only do I recognize I'm not in control, but listen, I release my desire to pursue control. Some of you may not struggle with the former, but I would venture to say that you struggle with the latter. You may not struggle recognizing you're not in control, but you, have, you may have this deep-rooted desire in yourself to grab hold of it. I want it. I need it. Because unless I'm in control, this life will fall apart. How many of you have ever felt that before? 
unless I can do this, unless this shapes up, unless I pass this, unless this person thinks this of me, my life is over. Have you ever thought that, felt that, sensed that? Has that ever pushed you to the point of depression? Trying to grab hold of control, and have you ever noticed you never really get it? At the point that you think you have the most control, isn't it always unfulfilling? Because it's in that moment you realize there's more control to be had. The people who truly struggle seeking and desiring after control, their search never ends. Because only God is truly there. Now, the concept of this is like, okay, so we're starting to understand humility, but, but what now? Well, let's pause Let's move forward in the verse, and then we'll come back. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God. Well, what do you see as significant? What did he say in verse 5, right? God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. What kind, of, what kind of, of wording is that? It's a statement, right? God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Here he says, humble yourselves. What is that? What is that? Come on. It's a command. So he says a statement, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Now he says a command, humble yourselves therefore under God's mighty hand. Have your parents ever used that phrase with you, right? Like you better, you know, the mighty hand of whatever it is. Well, it's an interesting biblical phrase. We find it all throughout the Old Testament and it has four main usage. The first is this. God uses it repeatedly in Moses' writing in Deuteronomy, uses it at least eight times in talking about God's deliverance of the nation of Israel from Egypt out of slavery. And the phrase keeps being repeated, the mighty hand of God delivered, the mighty hand of God delivered, the mighty hand of God delivered. That's the first. The second is works. God's might, Deuteronomy 3 and many other places in the Old Testament, phrases God's mighty hand. It has to do with works, his greatness, his majesty, right? Uh, the third, Ezekiel 20, 33, is wrath. The mighty hand of God is wrathful, right? And the fourth, Joshua 4, Joshua 20, many other places in Scripture, fear and sovereignty. So to say, humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, is to do what? What did I just say? I pretty much just encompassed a big piece of the character of God. Amen? Okay? Fear, sovereignty, deliverance, his greatness, his works. All of these things, though it doesn't encompass the full range, wrath, it gives us a pretty good amount of the character of God. So listen, step back. Step back from the verse. What is Peter saying? Humble yourself, therefore, under God's mighty hand. What is he saying? What is he saying? He's saying, submit to God. Now, if you haven't been with us, check this out. All in 1 Peter, there's been this theme of submission. Okay? He said, submit to the government even when the government is unjust. It was a tough teaching. Just so happened to be the day that Obama was here in St. Charles. Right? Crazy timing, but it's, but it's true. I was up on the roof of the building. Should have thought through that earlier. Right? As Obama <laughs> rolled by. Okay? So, do that right? The second is submit as an employer 
or as an employee to an employer, even if they're unjust, submit. Then what does he say? What's the third one? Wives, what? Submit to your husbands. Submit, submit, submit. Though he has inferred it, he's never come out and said it like he says here. Humble yourselves, therefore, under God's mighty hand. Submit to God. Surrender every piece of you. Not compartmentalized, not just this piece or alcohol or whatever it may be, your addictions, but everything that you are. Now listen, I'm just going to be vulnerable. I've struggled all my life trying to put a phrase on what this looks like. What does it really mean to give God all that I am, to surrender everything that I am, to humble myself, to be reduced under God's presence for his glory? What does that look like? Okay, so there's a song. You guys may know the song, maybe not. Take My Life, have you ever heard that song? Take My Life, Here I Am, All of Me. It's quoting Isaiah, right? When Isaiah says, Here I Am, Send Me. What I've realized is, I can sing that song 35 times and it doesn't mean I surrender. And I struggle with that because it seems so real. As I'm singing those words and I'm saying, Take My Life, like Here I Am, All of Me, I give you everything that I am. Yet it doesn't make me surrender. I've also, maybe you, have prayed many times, God, listen, I'm struggling with this. Here I am. Will you just, will you just take this? I just surrender everything to you. Prayer is incredibly powerful. And we can pray to God because Jesus is our high priest. Don't have time to teach it, but the quick is, He's making intercession to God for us, okay? He's our representative. But just a prayer, and I don't mean to diminish the power of prayer at all, but prayer doesn't mean I've surrendered either. You see what I'm saying? Because many of you in desperate moments of your life have cried out, and yet your life doesn't say surrender. Here's what I've realized. Humility, true humility, true reduction is a consistent portrayal in my life that I have realized that I'm not in control and that I've released the desire to gain control. And that is portrayed by my life. Not the songs that I sing not even the prayers that I pray, and definitely not the words that I say. I can stand up here in front of you and say, I've surrendered my life to God, but what I've realized in the power of this passage, in the power of what Peter's saying is, humility, true submission, giving your sin away, will reveal itself in your life. You will live submission. You plead for submission. Yes, you pray. God, help me submit. God, empower me to submit. God, take these things in my life. All of those completely legitimate and necessary. But it doesn't mean that, that all of a sudden everything changes. It's still you giving it up, surrendering, saying, God, I'm not in control. You are. God, I don't even desire control because you have it. Listen, it's been one of those weeks for me. Of all the weeks to preach this passage, and I'm, I'm sure in your, sometimes when you study the, the scriptures, you're like, wow, seriously? Have you ever done that before? 
Like one day, randomly, you just like opened your Bible. And you're like, boom, you know, hesitations, right? Not even a Bible book. That was a joke, right? But you just open it up, okay? You just open it up, and randomly, you're like, wow, this is powerful. This verse has been like that for me. Here's why. Three major times where my trust, my humility has been tested, okay? I'll share one. So this past weekend, I was on a trip uh, with a group of college Bible study guys. I've talked about them before. We call ourselves the losers. Uh, to gain your life, you must first lose it. Kind of catchy. Right. Okay. And um, we have like jersey. Anyway, it's cool. It's kind of like a, it's kind of like where a kid can be a kid. You know what I'm saying? Like that's really why we'll play wiffle ball. Anyway, sorry. But I was sitting there with my small group. I had four of us. And uh, here's one of my college roommates who lost his mom at 12. Here's one of my good buddies who lost his dad at 14. And here's another one of my buddies who lost his dad at 18. So I'm sitting with three men who all lost a parent. And as we start talking about this, listen, I'm reduced. I'm humbled as I watch these men in their brokenness talk and share. And here's what I realize. Their words, their rhetoric means so much. But I have watched these men, though dealing with the pain of their loss, embody the idea that God's in control. You see? They're not just saying, I'm, I'm okay. They're not just passing it off. I have witnessed in their life consistently, though the loss of a parent is so tragic, these men live as if God is in control despite horrific circumstance. That's humility. That's reduction. Not for our sake, but for the glory of God. Now, Here's how he ends verse 6. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may what? He may exalt you. Statement, right? God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Command, humble yourselves. Now what? Anyone? What? Promise. The Scripture is filled with the promises of God. This is one of the reasons why we love the Scripture. If you open your Bible, what you're going to see is the revelation of God's character and the power of God's promise. And know this about God, friends. He can never go against His Word. So what does He say? You humble yourself. You reduce yourself. You realize that you need a God. Guess what? Here I am, and I will be your God. Through Christ and His sacrifice, I can be your God. And guess what? At the proper time, at the appointed time, maybe different for all of us, I will exalt you. That's the promise. You humble yourself now, and you will be exalted. Modeled in who? Christ comes down to the earth. Philippians 2 says, humbled himself to obedience, even death on a cross. And guess what the scripture says? And God exalted him to the highest place, and he's seated at the right hand of the Father. That's your promise. Okay. Brilliant verse. Amen? Right? We together? It gets weightier. All right, check this out. Verse 7. 
casting, I love that word, I'll show you here in a second. Casting all your anxieties on him because he what? Because he cares for you. Epirepto is the Greek word for casting. Um, okay, quick story. Discern, yes, share. Okay, um, anyone, 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 love, uh, anyone love food fighting? Anyone here? Food fighting. Okay, uh, right. Well, when I was in college, uh, me and Dr. Dennis, the president, we loved to food fight, okay? We had a great relationship, and anytime the president of our great esteemed university would come in in his nine, right, we would, we would get literally in this food fight. So he'd be sitting over there in this meeting, and his big joke was if he could amidst the meeting, like, chuck a pickle at me, like it just brought him great humor, right? So one day, like, all of these men were gathered, this very prestigious group of men, and sometimes things just come over me, right? It was more like him throwing stuff at me, kind of a running joke. Well, this one time, he, he threw a cupcake at me, and homie, don't play that. You know what I'm saying? You, you don't throw cupcakes with frosting at anyone, Right? Okay? And so I had this, like, this cookie object with this big, like, nugget of, uh, what, like, uh, what do they call those, um, those little, uh, can- uh, no, no, not a kiss. It was like a uh, corn Halloween time. What do they call those? Yeah, candy corn. Thank you. That took us a while there, didn't it? <laughs> had this big candy corn thing, and I just took this thing, and I chucked it, and it smacked him right on the back and just all down him. And that was the end of the throwing fights, right? Because this, like, literally, like, one of the, he was asking for $100,000, he told me later. And this guy, like, he's like, what is going on at your university, right? I love to throw things, and that's the image here. Long story to get to the point. Casting. It means throw. I don't know how you throw, but this is a literal heaving Take your anxieties and your worries, and the scripture says, throw them on him. Let's use an example. Uh, Money. Have any of you ever had any anxiety that has centered around the dollar bill, y'all? Anyone? Okay. Okay. I would venture to say of all the things that we have had worry and anxiety about, The dollar bill, finances, has been one of the greatest. What he's saying here, and then we're going to break it down more, is you take your worry, you take your anxiety, you take all of that, all of that that concern that you have, and you literally throw that on him. You give it to him. You give it away. You surrender control. Now hold that thought and let's keep working. How do you normally respond to anxiety? Okay. Uh, some of you guys are the, uh, are the isolators. Some of you guys start to worry. You start to get anxiety. You start to fear whatever it may be. And you just, you just cower. How many of you guys would, would admit to being an isolator? Of course not, right? True to form, right? So some of you guys isolate, right? Uh, others of you guys brush aside, so inside, you're getting your anxiety-ridden. You're getting really worried. But some of you just, you just try to act like everything's cool. So you just kind of brush it aside. You don't isolate. You just, you just brush. You get rid of. And eventually, one day, it catches up. Anyone? Others of you tell everyone. Okay? 
Someone walks in, hey, how you doing? I'm pretty well horrible, right? And here's why. And you just lay it out. Whoever you talk to, Facebook, text, and the like, you just, it doesn't matter. The grocery store clerk, yes, it, whatever. You're telling everyone, like, this is the worst day. Have you seen the gas? It's too, I mean, you just, you're just telling everyone about your anxiety. And others of you have mastered the telling of few. I just bring this close circle in. How about you? How do you normally deal with it? I think we could all agree, no matter how you deal with it, isn't it consuming? Again, let's take money. Have you ever been so consumed with worry and anxiety over money that that was all you could think about? You lost sleep about it. Like you, you couldn't even lay your head down on the pillow because you kept working the numbers in your head and you kept thinking to yourself, this is not going to work out. This is not going to work out. Have you been there before? No matter how you deal with it, it is consuming. Now, how and the why? How do we cast our anxieties, throw them on God? Right, because some of you are thinking figurative. Like, so I grab my wallet and chuck and duck, like, you know, like, no. So how and why? The how we've already answered. The how we've already answered. You recognize that you're not in control and you release your desire to pursue it. Why? Here's how. Worry and anxiety and humility are all connected because the root of worry is pride. The root of worry is pride because it's this deep-rooted sense in you, desire in you, to be the center, to have everything under control, to have all the T's crossed and the I's dotted, so much so that then you get yourself worked up because ultimately you think that everything is hinging upon yourself. Listen, have you ever thought about this before? Your worry is rooted in pride. It's rooted in yourself. You've become so self-centered and consumed that it's caused you to worry about the things in life that Jesus says this about in Luke 12. And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to his span of life? It's a rhetorical question by Jesus, and the obvious answer is none of you, by worrying, can add one single hour. So how do we throw and cast? We daily, daily, minute by minute, recognize and release. And that is evidenced by our life. Are you with me? It's not just a song or a prayer or rhetoric. Tragedy, beauty, whatever happens, we're constantly, God, this is in your hands. You're in control. Here you are. Now, some of you will equate this to irresponsibility, right? You'll be like, sweet. So, money problem? God, it's in your hands. Guess what I'm going to do? 1-800-SIT-ON-THE-COUCH, okay? That would be some of your approach. This is not implying irresponsibility. There is a difference, listen to this, there's a difference between worry and interest. At the point that interest becomes worry, it's the point that your interest has become so self-consuming 
that in your deep interest initially, in your responsibility initially, you try to start to grab and reach out, forgetting who you're reliant on in God and trusting in and of yourself. But you have to be responsible. You don't say, oh, I've got a money problem, and I'm just going to sit around forever. No, you go get a J-O-B, right? And you plead that God would provide it. And you keep pleading, and you keep seeking. And at the appointed time, you keep praying that God will provide. So that's the how. But why? Listen, and I want you to get this maybe more than anything tonight. We cast our anxiety on him because it is a deterrent to mission. Your worry, your anxiety becomes so self-consuming that it deters you from being on mission, from sharing the love of Christ, from continuing to encourage others and esteem others towards Jesus. Your worry of yourself, your needs, your desires, your lusts, your passions will deter you from mission. So why do we cast our anxieties? Because it deters us from mission. How do we do that? We recognize and we release daily, consistently, and we watch him fulfill his promise. He's either in control or he's not, church, right? And we can say all we want in this setting. Oh, God, you're in control. Oh, God, you're in control. But it will be modeled by our life. So much so that in the situation with Jake, I'm sitting there in that room. And I'm believing deep down in my heart that God would do as he may. And I'm praying that God would save her. But I know and trust that God is completely in in control, not a doctor or a nurse or a machine. Are you with me? So, listen, what is it for you tonight? Right? What worry did you walk in here with? become so self-consuming, relationship, job, money, a sin issue. The scripture says throw it. And the only way you can do that is releasing control. And the promise is clear that what? He cares for you. You cast your anxiety because he cares. Now can I explain the significance of that phrase? You see, he's writing this to Greek culture. Well, the interesting thing about Greek culture is this, is they had a huge structure of gods. But of the Greek gods, you know how many gods were attributed to care? Zero. Though a few gods were considered good, and I use that term very loosely, there is one God who is considered caring, and that is the God of the Scriptures. It is Christ. So he takes the culture, the culture idiom here, that that there's no God that cares. We have to care about God so that God will give back to us. And this passage says, cast your anxiety on him because he cares for you. So what's stopping you? You see how ignorant it seems when we try to control? Does it even make sense? Now, look at verse 8, would you? And we're going to close with this, obviously. Be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. This is confusing to me. Here's why. He's like, fear not, right? It's all good. 
Cast your anxiety on him. He cares for you. By the way, Satan is pro- he's going to eat you, okay? So good luck with that, right? It's like, it's like, listen to this. How many of you guys are afraid of the dark? Come on, be honest. Would you? Or you used to be? Yeah. There you go. Of course you did. When, in my room when I was a kid, in my room when I was a kid, I, I had a basketball hoop, Nerf style, hanging over the, the thing. And the light would come through the thing, and the thing would shine on the wall, and it would look like a gorilla of death is what it would be, right? A gorilla of death and destruction. And so at night, like the light, when, when it would come in, it would, it would look ridiculous. Him doing this, it feels like he's saying, hey, Mark, um, dude, it's okay. Like, seriously, it's a, it's a basketball hoop. It's not a gorilla but look under the bed. You know what I mean? It's like, it's kind of like that's what he's doing here. He's, he's encouraging us w- with a little bit of side, you know, distraction, but that's not at all what he's doing. Now, Peter has a little bit of context, doesn't he? Listen, listen, please. All right? Right after he's called to be a disciple in Mark 1, do you know what Peter sees first? First, he sees an exorcism. Imagine yourself. Jesus says, hey, come follow me. You're a fisherman. Fisherman. You're whatever you are. Okay? You drop your nets. You follow him. The first thing you see is Jesus exercise a demon. Nothing like getting exposed just to the fire right away, you know? So he has some context. Then in Luke 9, guess what? When the 12 are sent out, guess what Peter is amongst, is amidst the crew called to do? Cast out demons. I know we have a hard time talking about Satan without picturing him in a red tutu, right? But would you take someone's word for it, a friend of yours that you trust that had seen it firsthand? All I'm saying is this dude saw it. Peter was amidst the warfare, and he understands that Scripture says that our battle isn't against flesh and blood, but against the powers and rulers and authorities of this dark world. He understands the fact that Ephesians says that Satan is the, the... the ruler of the air. He understands this, and so he says, be watchful. Now, I've done a little research here, and I think this is interesting. I think there's a reason why he chooses lion. I don't think he, like, looked at a puma, a tiger, and a lion, and then was like, all right, you know, whichever one is the prettiest, we're going to go with the lion. I don't think he did that. Here's why. I read some safari blogs. Have you ever read some? And uh, I was reading... I was reading safari blogs. Here's what they say, and I was very interested in this one particular blog. They watched this lion crouch behind a bush, okay? And this is the general tactic of lions. They hide near a source often of water for animals. And so these people, they watched. And all of these gazelles, I've always dreamed of saying that in a sermon, right? All these, all these gazelles come up, And the lion's crouched, he's hiding, and he comes out and he pounces and he dies, and all the gazelles run away. Well, the lion, crafty as he is, he goes back behind the bush. Hour later, guess what? Same pack of idiot gazelles, right? They come back out, the lion pounces. Listen to this. The third time, the gazelles wisen up. They they walk towards the water sideways, watching the lion. And guess what? The lion pounces not. It's known about lions that if their prey 
sees them and makes eye contact with them, it essentially takes the fun out. And so in this sense, when Peter strategically, I believe, and commentators would agree, says be watchful, be sober-minded, be aware, he's bringing out this image that Satan has a very specific strategy. And if we are aware of it and can become attuned to it and can become so accustomed to the strategy and we're watching for it, maybe we won't be lured. So what's the lure? How does he devour? Any guesses? Look at the context of the passage. He takes a situation and helps you believe that you don't need God. Pride. That's how he devours. That's how he comes in and confuses. It started in the garden. Did God really say? No. God didn't say that. He puts doubt and attempts to try to sway the mindset that God cares. And so pride arises and the scripture says what? God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Will you be watchful friends with me? Okay? Now, we step back from all this and I want to invite you to stand with me if you could. So I've dreamed and I've had many thoughts and I had one a couple days ago and I talk about her often my precious princess Avery my only daughter and once in a while in a moment of being reduced I think about what, what, what if something were to happen to my little girl accident or tra- whatever and here in the last few days I've been wrestling in my heart with how much I really trust God with an example like that could I, would I in that moment be able to say God you are in control. And God, I'm not going to pursue control because I can never get there. So God, reduce me. I know you care for me. And here, take all of my worry. I would like to think that I could do that. But I'm not sure. My encouragement to you and to myself tonight is this, is could we together, because of our desire to love God and exalt God and esteem God above all else, could you, not just by prayer or song or word, could we embody a lifestyle that truly 
exemplified God as in control. When is the world looking at us? They're looking at us in turmoil and trial. How will the Christian respond? Do they need God or don't they? I'm contending to you, this is our chance, church. In times of trial, like Peter talked about, to truly say, God is good, he's accomplishing his will, he's in control, and there's an enemy coming up against me, but the scripture says, at the proper time, he will exalt me, not for my own glory, but for his name's sake. That's our God. That's the character of God. That's stepping back from the scripture and saying, is he good or isn't he? My affections are stirred tonight, friends, because the promise of the scripture is this. I can take my worry and anxiety that doesn't add an hour to my life and I can throw it to the Father. No more words or just songs or just prayer. It's our life. Let's pray together. God, I am often a prideful man and I pray that you would reduce me, that you would cut me at my legs, that you would bring me to my knees and that you would help me trust you. I pray that for my friends in this church tonight that we don't waste time worrying, that we don't waste the precious seconds we have on this earth consumed with anxiety. God, would you stir our faith, increase our faith, that we truly can trust that you are big enough, that your grace is sufficient enough for all of the disgusting pieces of our sinful self. So God, Here we are. Send us.